Listener Production. Sharon Salzberg is one of the world's leading meditation and Buddhist teachers. Her early realisation of the power of these allowed Sharon to overcome personal suffering, which determined her life direction. Sharon says loving kindness and compassion are the basis for wise, powerful, sometimes gentle and sometimes fierce actions that can really make a difference in our own lives and those of others. In this heartfelt conversation, Sharon and I talk about why we find it so hard to be in our own mind, our habit to always go to the negative and how meditation helps to cultivate our capacity for real love. If we're looking at ourselves at the end of the day, and we're only thinking about the mistakes we made and what we could have said better and why did I do that and it was such a mess. And that's all we think about, our whole sense of who we are and all that will ever be just kind of collapses around that stupid thing we said at that last meeting we had. But it's almost like asking yourself, anything else happened today? That all may be true and room for improvement, but it's not all that we are, ever. So can we wish ourselves well? Can we have that sense of benevolence toward ourselves and see what happens? I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Sharon Salzberg was born in New York City in 1952. She is a New York Times bestselling author of 10 books, including her most recent book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Sharon explains that when we redefine our current notions of love, we can connect more deeply with ourselves, others and life itself. I started by asking Sharon about her upbringing and how she got to be where she is now. Well, like many people, you know, I had a very disrupted, uh, difficult childhood and um, I once calculated, uh, I went to college when I was 16 years old and By the time I had left for college, I had lived in five different family configurations, each of which had been ended by some kind of major loss or trauma. So, for example, I lived with my parents uh, till I was four when they got a divorce. Then I lived with my mother and her siblings. Then when I was nine, my mother died and, and, you know, it sort of went on from there. So um, by the time I went to college, I... Uh, it was also a family configuration, like many people's, where none of this was ever really spoken about. And I didn't know what to yeah. do with all of those feelings inside of me. And uh, it was when I was actually a sophomore in college, I took a Asian philosophy course, which was, there was a requirement to do a philosophy course of some kind. And I think I just kind of picked it, you know, like, I'll do that one. And it completely changed my life because... In the course of of that class, I heard, first of all, of the Buddha's teaching and particularly his teachings around suffering, that there is suffering in this life, that it's not aberrant, you're not weird, you shouldn't feel like you're the exception, you're cursed, you know, everyone else is doing fine, that it's not that we all suffer to the same degree or, or, or measurement, but the vulnerability is there because life is always changing and so everybody goes through something. And it's like for the first time in my life, I felt not so isolated. And I also heard in that class that there were actually techniques, there were methods one could use called meditation, that if you use them, 
that you could be a lot happier. You wouldn't necessarily feel so fragmented or torn apart and whatever the circumstances of your life were. And so I was going to school in Buffalo, New York, and I looked around Buffalo. I just didn't see it anywhere. And I had this big burning desire to actually learn how to do it, not just study it, but really learn how to meditate. So I went to the university, which had a program, like an independent study program. And they said, if you created a project that they liked, that they approved of, you could go anywhere in the world for years. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. So off I went. So before you ended up going to uni, you obviously experienced a lot of things like you just spoke about. How did you mentally get through them if you didn't speak to anyone about it and no one kind of in your family had talked to you about the fact that, you know, how to deal with divorce or the other kind of traumas you went through? How did that shape you till that moment? Well, I think I was waiting. You know, I had some bright sense within that there was something else. There was something out there. And that I needed to finish school, I needed to get out of there, I needed to keep exploring, you know, that um, there was some core element where I just knew that there was a a better way to feel, a better Mm. way to to live, to be. And I don't know what it was. Because a lot of people would have just crumbled. And and it seems like you had this innate drive that you, I don't know, that there was just something else in you. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, even that moment in, in Buffalo, New York, where I decided I was going to try to go to India rather mm. than just kind of sitting back and, uh, you know, letting other people do it or assuming I could never do it or something like that. There was something that pushed me forward. When you did go to India, what happened after that? Well, I wandered around for a while. I was looking for something very specific in a way. Um, I was looking for something uh, not very philosophical or culturally laden. I wanted really like the straight stuff. Like, how do you do this? And it took about three months. And finally, um, I began meditating in January of 1971. And uh, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka. And it was uh, this course in Bodh Gaya, India. Bodh Gaya is this town that has grown up around the descendant of the tree they say the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, it was it was an extraordinary gathering of people. I'm some of my closest friends still. I met there in January of 1971. And uh, it was an amazing moment in time because it was, uh, even though the techniques sound very simple, they're not very easy to do. And, and it was just this immense feeling of discovery and exploration and learning. And did you have a religion that you identified with before that? Uh, just culturally, because I grew up in a Jewish household, especially uh, after my mother died, I lived with my grandparents, and, and they especially, you know, one generation back were, were kind of observant. But it wasn't like an internal sense of knowing, you know, that, that there's something enlivening here for me, there's something enriching here for me. So then, obviously, you came onto those Buddhist teachings, and how do you think that meditation and Buddhism, which are obviously a huge part of your life now. How did you really embrace both of these? Well, Goenka, as I said, was my first teacher and he taught in the context of intensive 10-day retreats. And the first night of the first retreat, so this is really my introduction, uh, he said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And so this process is nothing about becoming a Buddhist or rejecting anything else or And it's completely open to everybody. So 
um, that was like the first night, you know, so that was really my background. So that was really the foundation of my understanding and remains that way to this day. But that was a long time ago, 71. So the languaging I use, the stories, the imagery, the illustrations tend to all come from the Buddhist tradition. So I usually just say that, that this is the most comfortable way for me to express what I really feel are some universal truths. And the meditation process itself, which is quite apart from the, the context of, of Buddhist teaching, um, is really just attention training. It's learning how to be more concentrated, more open-minded, um, seeing things more clearly, uh, being more compassionate, and so I found that the process difficult. It wasn't like I sat down and I thought, oh, you know, I'm a great meditator. Look at me. Um, it was quite difficult. But from the very first night, I just knew that there's something here that's, that's true and, and, it's, and it will include me. And obviously, like we spoke about, you had been through quite a bit before that. And I'm a big meditator as well. I think it's such a beautiful practice. But it, it is hard. It is hard when you start. And then you're just left with your thoughts, which, you know, when you haven't really spoken to a lot of people or really dealt with things in the past, that can be challenging. How did yes. you manage that? I think it was really because of the context. You know, he was very loving. Goink was very loving. And um, there was a method. You weren't just sitting and looking at your thoughts. You were feeling the breath and you were, you know, exploring sensations in your body. And, um, you know, so, so there was a way of getting more grounded and, and more present with your experience. And then um, it was just, it was context. You know, Goenka's style of practice really emphasized purification. Uh, you know, there was a purification model that um, the, sort of toxins, the toxicity in your being would emerge and come out. And that was the release, you know? So like if you had a nightmare, you woke up and you thought, Oh good. You know, I really like expressed something. I really, I let it go. You know, I relinquished its hold. And uh, so the worst you felt kind of the, you know, the more you were congratulated. What do you think from that time you discovered about yourself and especially through that meditation process? Everything. I mean, I had never really done any introspection before. Mm. I was 18. And uh, what changed really over time from that initial discovery was the ability to see whatever was happening without judgment. You know, so I'm somewhat famous amongst the group of people I'm so close to from those early days for once having marched up to the front of the room to go see Goenka and saying to him, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating. Thereby like, you know, it's all his fault, clearly. And yeah, of course. I've been hugely angry, but I hadn't really been aware of it. And mm. so this was my first sort of inward look at any depth. And there it was. And so at first it was a lot of discovery and a lot of um, revelation about, you know, my emotions and so on, but with a lot of judgment. You know, like I shouldn't be feeling this. Why is it still here? Or, you know, whatever. And 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 that judgment, that tendency toward judgment, really over time, uh, so transformed to much more kindness and compassion. Why do you think that meditation is so important? Well, for a number of reasons. One is I think it's very um, freeing, and it's it's 
very independent. It's like you don't need equipment, really. Uh, you don't need a, a super special environment. Um, we may go to a super special environment or special environment in a kind of a training period, you know, like going off and doing an intensive retreat, but it's a part of everyday life. And so people sometimes say to me, well, my best meditation is when I'm swimming or when I'm running or when I'm sketching or when I'm singing. And why can't that be my meditation? And I say, well, I think it can be your meditation. Mm. And for me, one of my goals is to try to offer to everybody something they can do anywhere. You know, so like, let's say you're at work and tempers are starting to flare yeah. and you're starting to get very anxious. You can't, there's a pool, you know, you're not going to start running around the room, <laughs> you know, presumably you're not going to start sketching or singing, but you can be breathing. You know, you can be grounding your awareness in your body. You could be feeling your breath. You could be seeing your impulses, you know, and deciding whether you want to follow them or not. And so um, it's so independent. It's so free of encumbrance and conditions that I just think it's an amazing methodology, a set, set of methodologies uh, for clarity, for concentration, for kindness and so on. And a lot of people starting out, and I, like I felt this when I first started meditation a few years ago, I, you know, you'd sit there and you do it and you think, I don't know if it's doing anything. And then you, oh, this thought, that thought. Why do people find it so hard? And what advice do you have to give them to kind of keep on keeping on with it? I think it's hard for different reasons for different people. Like clearly it was hard for me in the beginning because of all that judgment, you know, and so um, if I, for example, sat in not in retreat context, but just at, at wherever I was living in India, you know, and things felt lovely and my body felt serene and I was all peaceful. And I, I think, oh, good, I'm going to live in India for the rest of my life, feeling exactly like this. And when I was bored or restless or my knee hurt or my back hurt, I'd get up. I think it's, oh, I can't do it. It doesn't work. And I went to one of my teachers, a different teacher, a man named Manindra, and described that pattern. And he said to me, or for you, I have just one piece of advice. And that is just put your body there. You know, mm -hmm. one day it's going to feel one way. Another day it's going to feel another way. It's okay. Just put your body there. You just have to do it. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to be that patient, have a long-term perspective, to even know that's true. You know, we can jump in with the judgment so quickly. Like, I, you know, I'm not doing it right. Um, and so I think a, a tremendous support is having good instruction. Um, you know, something I say ad nauseum, I'm sure no one who's ever sat with me, you know, has not heard it. Everyone's heard it. Um, is that the key, for example, if you're doing the particular technique of resting your attention on the feeling of the breath, um, the key moment actually happens after you've been distracted. You know, it's not a question of like squeezing your attention down and holding mm. on to the breath so your mind never wanders. Your mind will wander. But what do you do then when you realize, oh, you know, I haven't been with the breath. Can you let go more gracefully? Can you start over again with a kind of a full heart and with some kindness to yourself? Or would you just go, you know, and start judging yourself? And usually we do do that. So, so that's a whole training and beginning again and making a mistake and being able to start over and having resilience and so on.
explain, obviously your big thing that you do is a loving kindness meditation. Can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, loving kindness is its own uh, particular methodology within the same kind of framework of of uh, the Buddhist teaching. And um, it uh, it's kind of like a sister meditation, you know, so many people I know do both. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, as a quality of the heart, it's really about connection. It's not about liking somebody or approving of them or deciding to give them money or any, it's not about a particular action you're going to take, but it's about a heart space that recognizes our lives are intertwined, that, that they're connected. And you might not like the person at all, but that is still true. Um, and so, uh, that realization does get awakened just in the course of being more mindful, more aware, seeing more clearly. But there are also techniques which are dedicated to the deeper uh, realization of that. And so it has a lot to do with how we pay attention in relational ways. So, for example, if we're looking at ourselves at the end of the day and we're only thinking about the mistakes we made and what we could have said better and you know, why did, why did I do that? And it was such a mess. And that's all we think about, our whole sense of who we are and all that will ever be just kind of collapses around that stupid thing we said at that last meeting we had. But it's almost like asking yourself, anything else happened today? Mm. That all may be true and room for improvement, but it's not all that we are ever, right? So can we wish ourselves well? Can we have that sense of, of benevolence toward ourselves and see what happens with that bigger view. And just like if you're at a party and you're talking to somebody, a stranger, and you're not listening, you're thinking about the email you need to write and who you'd rather be talking to. And you're Mm. kind of looking around the room. um, There's not going to be any sense of connection. And so if you realize that and you just like arrive and you're more fully present, that's a different thing. And so, uh, you know, loving kindness meditation is not about trying to talk yourself into something or force a feeling you don't actually have. It's about having a flexibility of attention so that we can be more present and more open and, and more connected. How do you think using that loving kindness uh, meditation has helped you through your life? Well, they say the Buddha taught it for the first time as the antidote to fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly I've experienced that, you know, like I had a, um, I don't know, I had like a, an admiration for the idea of loving kindness meditation. It was a long time before I learned how to actually do it in a systematic and sustained way. But um, I was always kind of like, ooh, what's that? I want to do that. You know, I want to learn that. And, um, and finally I did. I went to Burma in 1985 for a three-month retreat and had a, you know, really immersive experience in it. Before then, like in Goenka courses, there was a little bit of loving kindness at the end. It was almost a ceremonial way of saying goodbye. You know, it wasn't very structured. Mm. So it took took a long time before I really had a a much deeper experience. And I feel it changed everything for me. And, And especially maybe in relationship to the experience of fear. And just like a simple way, you know, people often tell me if they're performers of some kind or artists who need to perform in public and they have terrible stage fright. And I can't bear the thought that if they'll stand there on the stage and do loving kindness meditation, like silently thinking, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, 
for the people out there. And then suddenly Aww. it's not this mass of people waiting to judge me, you know, like with a big sense of self and others. It's like, okay, here we are together. It's just us. And, and the fear goes away. So I think that's how it actually works. And, you know, a lot of us live our lives, you know, there's kind of two things, love and fear. And I know the Buddhist teachings really kind of talk about that. Can you explain that in a little bit more depth? Well, in the Buddhist psychology, anger and fear are sometimes described as the same mind state, but in two different forms, anger being the expressive, outflowing, energized form, and fear being the held in frozen imploding form of striking out against what's happening, wanting to declare it to be untrue. And so energetically, those are very much the opposite of love. You know, they're contracted. Mm. You're either recoiling or you're, you're hostile, you're pushing away. And love is actually considered, uh, or loving kindness, it's a very spacious state. It's a very open state, so it's different. Um, the beautiful quotation from the Buddha uh, is develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. Uh, it's so open. The space is so open, unconfined, and and that's what love is like. Tell me, obviously, the Buddhist teachings are a huge part of your life now. What are some of your favorite ones? Well, there's one that I struggle with, like everyone does, perhaps um, who thinks about it, and um, which is a very famous one, and. And uh, that is love will never, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is an eternal law. And it's challenging. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautiful. And it's very challenging because, you know, look at how we're taught to define strength, for example. Love seems often to us to be weak and kind of too agreeable and, you know, just giving in and being passive and, you know, hostility is strong and being all alone and individualistic, that's strong and uh, working toward connection, that's weak and sentimental. And so when I hear a teaching, even now, you know, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. It's something to grapple with. And I think it's absolutely true. You know, even in extreme situations, I think it is it is the fundamental truth. Why do you think so many humans hold on to the negatives and not the positives? I mean, what you speak about is all moving towards that love and kindness and, and seeing the good things. But why why do we find it so hard to find them when they're there? Well, evolutionary biologists talk about it in terms of a negativity bias that we're kind of wired as though we were still in the jungle with lions and tigers are about to eat us, you know? Mm. And so we tend to interpret stress, um, stressors, you know, uh, as threats. And of course, some of them are threats, but maybe they're not all threats. Um, you know, so if you look at like the descriptions of stress, it's, it's a combination of the circumstance, you know, like the external, or even internal stressor. Um, it's the circumstance, and then there's the resource with which it's being met. And so we know that, you know, that um, we might be having a basically good time in life, like things are placid or even really good, but internally we feel chaotic, we feel alone, mm. you know, lonely, we feel depressed. 
we're not going to be having a really good time, you know, no matter yeah. what. And at the same time, we might have tremendous adversity and challenge and difficulty, but we feel a sense of community. It's like we're all in this together. And, um, or there, there are possibilities. I'm learning skills I didn't have before. And, uh, you know, so that it's not the same kind of adversity when we feel hopeless, you know. And so we really try to cultivate that sense of inner resource um, because the circumstances will always be up and down. That's yeah. just the nature of life. In your everyday life, because obviously, you know, this is your bread and butter, do you go through life now just always happy? Or, you know, how do you get through? I mean, I know that is so hard, but there must be challenges. And how, how do you get through them? Well, of course, there are challenges. And, and uh, I feel like a lot of gratitude for the years of practice because, you know, I was interviewed for some magazine once. Uh, the topic was something like... Um, how would mindfulness help in a time of complete crisis? And I had one of those experiences, you know, where you hear these words come out of your mouth. So what I heard Mm. come out of my mouth was I wouldn't wait. Like why wait until the bottom falls out or, you know, things really go awry. And some people do, and they still get some support and benefit, but it's, I really believe now it's like the daily process of almost like retraining your brain, you know, um, and your being, and you just do it every day, even when it's boring and even when it seems like nothing's happening and, and it will be there when you need it. I really do believe that. I was talking to you um, before about your book, Real Love, that I've read, which is just, and it's so beautiful in so many ways. You speak about the fact that the heart must break in order to open. Why do you think that? Uh, I think in real love, I talk about this saying, this kind of common and awful of, um, it's a dog eat dog world. Mm. You know, and many of us are brought up that way. Like it's a dog eat dog world. Don't help anybody else because they're not going to help you. And it doesn't matter who you have to step on to get ahead and you're all alone anyway. And um, I once used that phrase. It was the, the beginning of a six day seminar I was co-teaching and I was talking about that's an absurd you know notion about life I and mean, what a vision and this young woman came up to the microphone and, and she was really aghast and she said I never knew the phrase was it's a dog eat dog world I always thought it was a doggy dog world like puppies jumping up and down in meadows, you know and she said what an awful phrase and then six days later as we were doing the closing circle, she came back up to the microphone and she said, I've decided I'm not going to live in a dog eat dog world. I'm going to live in a dog eat dog world. You know, so it's kind of like that. We're trained, we have habits, we have conditioning and to move away from them is not always that easy. And sometimes it, it is a jolt of pain that we go, Whoa, what is this really about? How do you think we practice real love in our daily life? I think some of the building blocks are really um, kind of simple, but not that easy to do, like being kinder to ourselves. Um, Going back to the formal meditation, just as an example, you know, if you're sitting and uh, settling your attention on the feeling of the breath and your mind wanders, maybe that doesn't have to be the occasion of 15 minutes of hating yourself, Mm. you know? 
how do we practice self-compassion like to ourselves and to others? What do you think the best way is? Well, I usually start um, really kind of where I started was that when you see the tendency toward what's really unfair judgment, you know, being able to see it for what it is as a habit and see if you can relinquish it and then just start over, you know, because that is inevitably going to deepen. It's like the muscle of self-compassion that's going to strengthen that just right there. And people get very discouraged because they think, oh, I shouldn't have those thoughts anymore. I shouldn't be disparaging myself, or, but we are, you know, so mm. the point is not to not have the thoughts. It's not to get all tangled up in them. You know, so you have those thoughts and you let them go. And, you know, just in day-to-day life, obviously, you know, we are beings that love being with other beings, but sometimes it's hard. People in a work environment or whatever, they can obviously rub us up the wrong way. How, what is the best way to kind of manage those situations and give compassion to the other person and love and kindness? Well, I think, you know, some of it is reflection and it's, it's realizing that, I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, you would say that everybody wants to be happy. Everybody actually wants a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, a sense of feeling at home somewhere in this body, in this mind, with one another on this planet. And the real problem is ignorance, is that it's hard to figure out where real happiness is going to come from. You know, we if you just think about the cultural messages that we get all of the time, um, it's hard to not buy into that. And so um, that's a reflection people do sometimes. Some people in the corporate world have told me that like, if they're in a meeting and everyone's sitting around the table, they'll look at person after person and silently say to themselves, Oh, you want to be happy too, and you want to be happy too, and you want to be happy too, and realizing it's ignorance. You know, we get so fooled by so many things, and um, that's part of it. And part of it is realizing the universality of, of suffering, not in the intensity or or the kind, but just that vulnerability. You know that uh, you know you can look at someone who's really in a bad way and think, oh, you know. I feel so bad for you. Your life's just falling apart, which mine could never do, you know, Mm. but it's not true. Um, You know, so compassion is much more of a, it's not a hierarchical state, like I'm all together and you're pathetic. You know, it's, it's a much more even kind of playing field. And you realize, yeah, people's lives change in uncounted ways. And um, here we are, we can, we can help one another. What do you want your legacy to be? I think that it's really been expressed, you know, in everything I write, for example, that these are not far away, esoteric, unimaginable strengths that we're, I think we're all really capable of it. And that meditation is often not what we think it is, you know, something bizarre and something we can't do. And so it's that capacity within us for understanding and for love that I really, really believe in. I would love my legacy to be uh, helping more people believe in that. Do you look back at your life with any regrets? Um, only in the, in the sense that um, there were, uh, like when I first left India in 1974, it was with the intention to go back very quickly and live there forever. 
So <laughs> oh, haven't we all wanted to do that? Gonna yeah. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. In fact, one of the um, main things I did before I left India was go to see one of my teachers, this woman named Deepama, who told me to teach when I got back to the States. So that was really the beginning of of my entire teaching life. And, you know, so I'm, I wouldn't actually regret not spending the rest of my life in India, but I wish I'd spent more time there. I wish I'd had more years of just practice, and, but it's been pretty good. You know. Do you pray? Um, in a way, you know, like prayer has a very particular meaning. It actually has different meanings in different schools of Buddhism. So it's not like uh, petitionary prayer, like may this work out, you know, exactly mm. the way I want it to work out. But may I meet this moment, you know, with kindness and strength. So I think many people might call that prayer. What is a life of greatness to you? I think it's a life of compassion and um, not settling for easy answers. Sharon, thank you for your beautiful teachings and thank you for making this world so much brighter. It's an honour to have spoken to you today. Well, thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.